0: Bible says let your conversation or conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have for he has said i will never leave thee nor forsake thee it is covetousness that sows the seeds of discontentment with our present state and condition causing us to be unhappy we define covetousness as an inordinate desire and we said that that means an excessive immoderate desire to possess or have something that God has not seen fit to give us, that God has not appointed us to have. What we covet can be material or it can be immaterial in nature. And it can be something that's outside of covetousness is lawful for us to have or something that is unlawful. The Word of God tells us, for example, in Philippians 4.11, we looked at that, Verse last time teaches us we are to be satisfied with our present circumstances and present things. We are to be content with what God gives us today from day to day. When we covet, we become more and more forgetful of just how much God has blessed us and continues to bless us. And we looked at Romans eight twenty eight through 32 to remind us of some of those blessings that God showers us with. The origin of our covetous thoughts and desires we said is our sinful corrupted nature. Romans 3:12 and Mark 7:21 through 23. We have covetous thoughts and desires because man, rather than being inherently good, the Bible teaches us is inherently evil, is inherently sinful. We stir up and excite these covetous thoughts and desires when we entertain them, taking delight in them, taking pleasure to dwell upon them, allowing them to grow into full-blown lust and gain a foothold in our life. Now, continuing on in our study, if you turn to Exodus chapter 20, and verse 17, I'd like to look at that, examine that verse next. God says in Exodus 20, verse 17, of course, chapter 20 is the commandment chapter. Exodus 20, Verse 17, God says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. God's tenth and final commandment of the Decalogue quite literally gets to the heart of the sin issue our inordinate lusts, our covetousness after unlawful things. Things God has clearly forbidden in His blessed word that are contrary to His character, and therefore ought to be contrary contrary to the character of His children. Romans seven twelve teaches us the law is spiritual. It is holy, and as such, the law of God is concerned first and foremost with the inward spiritual condition of man. Therefore God's law forbids not only external acts of sin, but the inward first motions of it in the heart where all sin starts and has its beginnings and what the bible refers to as the old man the corrupted heart and mind of man paul testified that it was the law that taught him that the lust of covetousness was sin, not not purely or not only the act of actual covetousness in romans 7 7 the bible says what shall we say then is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. The Bible teaches that the lust of covetousness is the root of all sins of word or deed. James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own Lust and enticed, then when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. And notice, we talked a lot about compassion and love towards one another last time, but notice James's compassion here for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not err, my beloved brethren. But the Bible tells us here that covetousness produces. Sin. And sin produces death in all forms physical, eternal, spiritual, right? Covetousness produces death. It is the lust of covetousness that causes us to violate the seventh and eighth commandments adultery, stealing, It's covetousness that causes us to violate the 6th, 5th, and ninth commandments. Murder, dishonoring our parents, bearing false witness or lying. As well as the first commandment, idolatry. And we did touch on that last time. We'll touch on it a little bit more this afternoon. But once covetousness has been conceived in the heart, once it's been accepted and embraced, it produces death When we are covetous, it is as if we are saying to God, Lord, you've been holding out on me. And I desire to have more than what you have seen fit to give me. What you have provided for me, my job, dwelling, possessions, family, etc., just isn't quite enough for me. And I know what is best for me. I know better than you what will make me happy. This is obviously an affront to the Lord on several fronts. Though we think we know what's best for us, we don't. Clearly we don't. Only the sovereign, omniscient, wise God fully comprehends our needs and only He can provide them. Covetousness is also an attack on God's character, upon His tender care and love for us, His goodness and His graciousness to His children. The Bible tells us in Psalm 84.11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. And Brother Jorge talked a lot about that this morning, about how the Lord, right, is the son of righteousness. And how the Lord is, the Bible says, the Lord himself is light. The source of all joy and happiness in the soul comes from the Lord. The source of of that is the Lord. Again, Psalm 84.11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. God, the Bible says, will not hold, withhold any good thing from his children. And how much better is God than we who are evil and we give good gifts unto our children. By the way, only God's children will walk in his ways, right? So this is certainly a promise to us, his children, that God will bless us. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God is absolutely dependable, and his dependability is an unchanging character trait. Therefore, we can confidently proclaim with the psalmist, The Lord is my rock and strength of my salvation. Psalm 18.2 In the latter part of Hebrews 13.5, The Lord lovingly provides us with a precious promise, assuring us He will never leave us nor forsake us. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have for he had said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. This, The significance of this promise is twofold. One is the sub and substance of all of God's promises to us. It is a comprehensive promise that encapsulates all of God's other promises to us, to us in which we rest in. That God will always be with us and always help us. The comprehensive nature of this command should give us great comfort and assurance, emboldening and strengthening our faith in the Lord. Secondly, the promise is emphatic, emphasizing the impossibility of the Lord deserting his people. The Believer's Bible Commentary states that in the Greek language, strong negation is expressed by using two or more negatives— in this verse, the construction is very emphatic. It combines five negatives to indicate the impossibility of Christ deserting his own. Matthew Henry states it this way I will never, no, never leave thee nor ever forsake thee. That's a strong statement, is it not? MacArthur states it this way It is like saying there is absolutely no way whatsoever that I will ever ever leave you. Amen? You know, since I studied this verse, since I read this verse, I've been thinking about God's promise to us. And I've thought about all the times that I've been anxious about things and worried, you know, worrisome. And, and I think, wow, this, this promise was here all along. It was sitting right here in the Scriptures. And I missed it. I missed it. Yes, I might have read it, but I didn't receive it. And I was thinking about how, how often we, we rob ourselves of God's blessings because we don't receive His Word. God's given us these precious promises. And unfortunately, sometimes the reality is we don't even read them. And then other times, right, we just read right over them. And I think, man, I could have had this, this joy, this, this peace, this trust in the Lord all this time, and I was worrying. How dumb is that, Right? Now I would like to remind you that this is not a person giving us his promise, not a mere man, this, but this this is a promise from almighty God himself. God in his mercy and grace does not leave us to our own corruptions, nor does he leave us to our own strength which is weakness, nor our own wisdom which is folly. God, in His mercy and grace, does not leave us to Satan's attacks and temptations. He always gives us grace and a way to escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God, in His mercy and grace, does not leave us to the frowns and flatteries of this world without comforts and helps, or allowing us to be drawn aside that we would be swept away by them. God, in His mercy and grace, does not leave us destitute of His presence. Philippians 1.6 God will not leave nor forsake us that we would perish never, no, never and never, brothers and sisters in Christ is never and that's a promise you could take to the bank so to speak this is almighty God and the almighty God always makes good on his promises amen, praise God our Heavenly Father's presence will never part from us, not in life, nor death, nor eternity. We have no need of worry since God has emphatically promised to never forsake us, but to help us. The Bible says in Hebrews thirteen six, The Lord is my helper. Which is yet another strong argument, proof, and support for us to be content with what our present circumstances and future prospects are placing all our confidence in Him who has promised. Romans eight thirty five 35-39, the Bible says, Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep. For the slaughter, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That means we are decisive victors. We didn't just win the war, right? We're victorious in the war. We're decisive victors. And how is that possible? Through Him. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ that loved us. The Bible is on to say in verse 38, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. No one No principality, no power, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Another promise that we can rest on. The Lord is most gracious to provide for us everything we need to enjoy and glorify Him now and forever. The Lord knows what we need to be happy. He also knows how much of a good thing we can handle. Individually, and how much of it will tempt us to sin. The Puritan Thomas Watson, in the art of divine contentment, addresses this very thought or line of reasoning. Thomas Watson said, God sees in his infinite wisdom that the same condition is not suitable for all. That which is good for one may be bad for another. One season of weather will not serve all men's occasions, one needs sunshine, another rain. One condition of life will not fit every man. No, man. no more than one suit of apparel will fit every body. Prosperity is not fitting for all, neither is adversity. If one man is brought low, perhaps he can bear it better than another can. He has a greater supply of grace, more faith, and patience. Another man is seated in an imminent place of dignity. He is better suited for it. Perhaps it is a place that requires a greater measure of judgment, which everyone is not capable of. Perhaps he can use his estate better. He has a public, open home. The wise God sees that condition to be bad for one, which is good for another. Hence, it is he who places men in different orbs and spears. Some higher, some lower. One man desires health. God sees sickness is better for him. God will work health out of sickness by bringing the body of death into a consumption. Another man desires liberty. Sounds like us good old Americans, right? Always desiring our liberty. Another man desires liberty. God sees restraint better for him. He will work his liberty by restraint. When his feet are bound, his heart shall be most enlarged. Do we believe this? It would give a check to the sinful disputes and quibbles of our hearts. Shall I be discontented at that which is enacted by decree? And ordered by a providence? Am I going to be a devoted child or a rebel? God is sovereign. And orders all things according to his providence. In order to be content, we must submit to the will and providence of God in every condition and circumstance of life. Because I think this is a, it's a great verse. It's in Proverbs 17 verse 22. The Bible says, "A merry heart, what's a merry heart?" Happy, yeah, it's a a happy, joyful heart doeth good like a medicine. And what does a medicine do? What kind of good does a medicine do? It heals, right? It heals. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit, a sorrowful and grief-stricken heart, a sorrowful and grief-stricken spirit dryeth the bones, brings sickness to the body rather than health. All right, that's all. We still, we still have a few minutes left. I need to use the time because uh, we won't have enough time next time if, if we don't. So if everybody wants to stand up, turn your Bibles to First Timothy chapter 6. We're going to read, I'm going to read scripture here. So if everybody wants to stand up, it would be kind of considered a stretch break, our seventh inning stretch here. We still have uh, a little over 15 minutes. And yes, I have to go the full time. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 10. 1 Timothy 6, 5 through 10. Give everybody a minute to get there. 1 Timothy 6, verses 5 through 10. All right, verse 5. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. Supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Amen. You can sit down. Nice little stretch for you, hopefully. Don't want you to fall asleep on me. I'll try to, I'll try to raise my voice so it keeps you awake, yell at you. All right. So what does it mean to be content according to the word of God? We'll be discussing a working definition of contentment for the purpose of assisting you in diagnosing any discontentment that may be hiding or lurking about in the secret corner or recesses of your heart. A working definition of contentment. Here it is. Contentment is realizing that God has already provided everything that a person needs to glorify and enjoy Him. It is our purpose, privilege, blessing, and responsibility to enjoy God and glorify Him in and through our life. God leaves us with nothing wanting, providing us with the blueprint for contentment, the how, you might say, to be content. Looking at verse 5, let's examine verse 5, and this will be, well, we'll see a we'll see time permitting, but this will probably be the, the last verse that we, we look at in this, um, in this uh, section of Scripture for this afternoon. But examining verse 5, the Bible says, Perverse disputings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth. These perverse and corrupt men know not the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the Bible says they are destitute of the truth. The Bible goes on to say supposing. And what the Bible is saying, really saying there is stating. Stating that gain, that material wealth, is godliness. pastor often preaches against the prosperity preachers. And I'm sure all of us would how I reject the prosperity gospel in this church without question and we should material wealth gain is not godliness and godliness is not gain is it however to a lesser degree christians do equate incorrectly The state of their financial or material condition or obtaining some material possession to mean God is either blessing them or withholding his blessing from them. For example, we commonly think that God is blessing us when things are working out for us financially, don't we? When things are materially going well or according to plan. Just as we had planned them going according to our desires. So God must be blessing, right? And that God is not blessing when they aren't going according to plan. I'm sure the Apostle Paul would disagree with that line of thinking. Would you not? Especially after looking at Philippians 4.11, Paul had learned in whatsoever state he was in to be content. He didn't uh, have a whole lot of financial or material possessions in prison, did he? No. We have it good, don't we? The Lord saved my wretched soul at 20 years old, and I haven't been thrown in prison yet. So things are going pretty good. I said yet. (laughs) All right. Perhaps things aren't working out as you had planned because God is blessing you despite yourself. God's blessings and approval upon our life is not dependent upon whether we obtain material things or material wealth. It is evident from the scriptures that God places very little importance on material things except for promising to provide for us the daily necessities of life and commanding us to pray for these necessities. For example, in Matthew 6, 11, where the Lord Jesus tells us to pray for our daily bread, for our daily needs, give us this day, our daily bread. The Bible says in Matthew 6, 31 through 34, "...therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek." What is the Bible talking about when it's saying Gentiles here? It's talking about all those who know not God, who have not faith. That's not you this afternoon, is it? If you're a child of God, it's not me. We're to have faith. We're to have faith in Him. Trust trusting in Him. Not our ability to produce or anyone else's. We're not to worry and to be anxious. And all these things, like so often we are. As a father, I can relate. Being the main provider. Bible goes on to say, For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Does God not know that we have need of all these things? The omniscient God has something escaped him? What does the Bible say in verse 33? We say this in Sunday for years, saying this in Sunday school and singing it on the, the church bus. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. In other words, God saying, Do my will, worship me, serve you, and don't worry about the rest. I'll take care of it. And by the way, I am more than capable of doing that. Verse 34, take therefore no thought for the morrow. And we didn't look at it, but if you go back to verse 25 in that chapter, that's the very first time that Jesus says, take no thought. So this is actually the third time in that section of scripture where Jesus is saying, take no thought. Take no thought. Take no thought. Do you think the Lord is trying to emphasize something? The Lord is trying to help us, and he knows how stubborn and how obstinate we are to not trust him, but trust ourselves, or to fret and worry. The Bible goes on to say, For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And it, it reminds me about how, life, how hard life is sometimes, right? How hard an individual day is. It's like, why do we even think? Sometimes I think, why do we even think about tomorrow, right? Today's hard enough. And I think that's what God is saying. Just, Think about today, and that doesn't mean that we worry about today. No, that means we cast all our care upon him, and we live day to day to day, just in day-tight compartments, like we talked about before, day-tight silos. Now, I want to say something before I make my next (laughs) comments. I want to be clear that I make these statements. As James said in James chapter 1 and 14 through 15, that he made the comments that he made so that we would not err. He says that we would not, that you would not err, my beloved brethren. I make these comments. That's my motivation. It's out of, it's out of love. It's out of being, instructing. Hopefully it's to your edification I'm not mad at anybody, I'm not angry at anybody, and I don't want you to be angry at me. (laughs) I really don't. I love you. I love each one of you. And you don't have to agree with me. I'm up here teaching, and I'm commentating on what I think the Bible says. And what I think is the biblical way to make decisions the Christ-centered way to make decisions. You can disagree with me. I love you. I hope you still love me. We can agree to disagree, right, without, like, getting nasty. I don't, I don't believe any here would get nasty, but it's very important to me that you understand where I'm coming from, that I am coming from a position of love. Okay? Okay. I've really hyped this up now. <laughs> So when it comes to material things, material possessions, this is what I have observed that we do as Christians. And again, this is not what the purpose of tearing anybody or the way people, we we're to examine ourselves, right, and our own decision making so that we make biblical decisions, I know everybody in here wants to honor Christ. That's the, that's the goal, right? We're not trying to be like overcritical of anybody. It's so that we make good decisions. Amen? So we seek after some material thing or improve material circumstance. And when we obtain what we desire, what do we say? We say, God blessed me with it, right? God blessed me with it. There's somebody uh, my wife and I know, and he's a Christian, and this is I mean, he said this to me recently, actually. He said, "God bless me with it." Or God opened this door or that door for me to get it." Well, maybe God did. Maybe God didn't. We need to be very careful when we speak for God. And I don't presume to do that now. I just say, let's do our best from the scriptures to make biblically based decisions. Okay? we're looking at these scriptures specifically on covetousness. My question, or questions would be, did you violate a biblical principle to obtain what you wanted? Did you put God first in your decision-making process, ensuring there would be no conflict of interest between what you are desirous of and what the Lord is desirous of for your life? As he clearly delineates in his word. His word is his decreed perfect will revealed to us. So there's no guesswork. At least in what's revealed to us, often as Christians, we make decisions that are not spiritually motivated but financially or otherwise motivated to our own spiritual detriment. I 've seen it in this church being here as long as I have with many people who have left, and I 'm not condemning anybody who <laughs> for leaving or who will leave in the future, any, anything like that. But I've seen it, how their decisions were not good decisions spiritually. They were to their detriment. And that's just, that's just the truth. This is precisely why when Christians move from one geographic location in the country to another, they often don't know where they're going to go to church, or even if there is a church for them to attend in that locality. Spiritual motivations, sadly, are not the primary consideration in this instance, but are secondary, tertiary, tertiary or even less in their decision-making process. Now we have to ask ourselves, is that how God wants us to make biblically-based, God-centered decisions? Is God blessing or you forcing the issue? Is the primary motivation of the decision you're contemplating, financial or some other secondary motivation, to a spiritual motivation? I'm not saying if you make a decision that isn't primarily spiritual that that is against God or against the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying, uh, one, is that you need to be extremely cautious You need to be extremely circumspect if you're making a decision and the primary motivation is not a spiritual, it's not based on a spiritual decision. You need to understand you're in an area that you're in the danger zone, right? You're in a very unsafe area. You're like on the ledge of, you know, that cliff and it has the warning sign, like, oh, be careful, you know, falling rock or whatever. Cliff may collapse. And then secondly, I would say, besides realizing, being extremely cautious and circumspect, you need to ask yourself, are you taking the utmost diligence in order to make sure spiritual considerations are attended to with the highest priority, sobriety, and attention? The absolute soberness, right, towards your... Decision, And you're really focused on making sure that your spiritual house, and for you husbands and fathers, that your spiritual house is taken care of. For you and your, your wife and your family. If the answer is no to this, quest, this last question that I asked, you can be sure God's approval and God's blessing is not upon a decision like that. And that should not be a surprise to us. Another way to think about biblically-based, God-centered decision-making, and is what I think is the correct Biblical thinking and decision-making is, is to ask yourself, is the primary reason I am making a particular decision based upon spiritual motivations? And I think that we ought to, as much as we can, strive to make decisions that are primarily spiritually motivated. And when they're not, we we need to be extremely careful. Am I putting God and His desires first in my life? His worship? His will, His work, His church. Are you like, man, I can't wait to get this new place so I can start serving God again in, the, in, the, in, the, in church? That should be your attitude, right? You're going to get to wherever you're going and you're going to serve God. Am I putting God first in his desires, or am I putting myself first in my desires? If we're going to love God as we should, truly placing him preeminently in our life, placing him first in our life, that's what preeminent means, that God is first. God is above all things. This necessitates us exercising self-discipline and self-sacrifice. And it's a simple saying. It's trite, I admit. Yes to God is what we need to say in his desires and no to self in our desires. Amen? And I just want to, we got we to close, but I want to I finish this verse 5, 1 Timothy 6, verse 5. Just close it out perverse disputants of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw yourself. The Bible makes it very clear we are to withdraw our fellowship from these false teachers who serve themselves and not the Lord Jesus Christ, who use religion and people for their own profit and their own gain. The Bible says they make merchandise out of people. So far are these... False teachers and preachers from true godliness. We would completely withdraw ourselves from them. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word, and we just pray that you difficult issues that we talked about tonight, covetousness, in our life, placing you in that first position. seeking to glorify you with the limited time that we have on this earth, to um, the maxim, our maximum ability with your help, your grace, your blessing. Please help us to make decisions that glorify you. I know, I know everyone here tonight wants to make decisions that please you and that glorify you in their life. We just pray that you'd help us to do that. Guide us through your spirit. Guide us through the word. Teach us through the scriptures. Help us to do that, that we would please you. And help us, Lord, when the, and it's a hard choice. Help us to make the choice that pleases you. And we just thank you and praise you again for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.